Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live from Rhode Island, and I am thrilled to welcome today's guest to the Race Podcast, Deb Taft, the CEO at Lindauer. Welcome, Deb. Thanks, Brent. Great to see you. It is great to see you as well. And given the fact that I am working remotely here in Rhode Island, I think that is good fodder for this conversation. Before we dive into a bit about your story and perspective on the nonprofit fundraising world, tell me, what is Lindauer? So Lindauer is a retained executive search firm that forever, uh, 25 years, has focused on the nonprofit sector. Um, Started out in fundraising deep, deep roots and advancement in fundraising, which is relevant to our conversation. Uh, But at this point, does a whole range of leadership roles across nonprofits and across every part of the nonprofit sector. So be it healthcare, uh, education, um, arts and culture, nonprofits, charities um, around across the United States and around the world. What is the sector mix? I've gotten to know you, obviously, by way of our work in the education uh, vertical at at Evertrue, which has been our primary focus. That has broadened a bit recently uh, with our merger with ThankYou. What is the mix with Lindauer's work? So it's really quite a spread. Education is still the largest in everything from uh, public universities, private universities, liberal arts, um, independent schools, community colleges. So that full range, still our largest sector. Uh, But in fact, everything else has grown. Healthcare and academic medicine has grown. Um, uh, Arts and culture, interestingly, even after 2020, continues to grow. Um, And the charity sector, you may remember that I spent some years not only in the healthcare uh, arena, but also uh, leading all the fundraising for the Girl Scouts uh, globally and nationally. And so, you know, that whole idea of major national chapter organizations um, and even small nonprofits, because even within the Girl Scouts, there are large nonprofits and then there are uh, smaller nonprofits. So um, I really fell in love with that full range of, of, of things. So really Lindauer does the full mix. Well, you have uh, had a, uh, a journey through the nonprofit sector um, with exposure, as you said, to a few of those different um, categories before uh, taking uh, the role at Lindauer. I do just want to quickly understand to frame things for our audience, your own educational journey. So uh, take me back to, the, you know, oftentimes I say, take me back to your junior year of high school when you were making your decision and how you ended up at Harvard. But I think in your case, I might say, take me back to eighth grade and ultimately what the, uh, the decision-making process was to attend Phillips Exeter Academy, one of Evertrue's first and, and longest uh, standing partners uh, and truly a remarkable place. Um, was that something that when you were in, I don't know, fifth grade was on the radar or uh, what was the, the catalyst to, to go Better. there? Better story there, Brent. Uh, my dad taught at Exeter for 38 years, um, and my mom and dad were in a dorm for 25 years. Um, so I do remember that they were one of your first clients. Um, I'm the youngest of five uh, Taft children, and all five of us went to Exeter. So really, wow. as you can imagine, just a, a huge a huge opportunity um, to be there at school, but also to grow up in that environment, right? Those are people think of uh, and often have misconceptions about independent schools as very precious and privileged places, but is in fact, of course, enormous numbers of students on financial aid um, and, uh, you know, very rich textured communities in in these institutions. Well, I, uh, I love that backstory and I'm, I need to share this with you if I haven't already, but my co-founder, Jesse Bardo, attended uh, Phillips Andover 
uh, and his parents were, uh, uh, his father was an English teacher there. His mother taught at the Pike School. And so he taught me the expression fact brat for the first time. And so I guess you and your, your, your Taft siblings were, were quite a fat, uh, 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 fact brat, brat rat pack or something mm -hmm. like that. Oh, yeah. the FBI, Fact Brats Incorporated, actually. Got it. Kind of funny. But, you know, that's it. also how, I mean, I, uh, after, I then came, obviously, to, to Harvard for, for college, uh, for university, loved that time there, loved being in an urban environment, um, and went into banking. I was actually at Bank of Boston when it was Bank of Boston. Mm -hmm. It's been merged many times since then, but at a time of really exciting interstate banking and opening up, and so learned a, a lot, many stories around that as well. But it was when I was at the bank that I first received the call saying, um, we've recommended you, this is a friend of mine said, I've recommended you to Beaver Country Day School um, to get into the field of advancement. And um, uh, they're gonna call you about a job and you should take the call and you should take the job. And in some ways the rest is history that, that I was always more of a business type, right? So the, the banking story is, is real, um, but I went in of course, therefore to the almost business side. A lot of my family members were on the faculty side and I went into what I would call the more business side of advancement and marketing mm -hmm. communications for Beaver Country Day and then um, Cushing Academy, Native American Preparatory School, uh, founded a school out in the Southwest and then uh, Concord Academy for nine years as, as assistant head. I love that. Um, I do have to just get your perspective on the independent school world and the positioning of the independent school world and the evolution uh, of the independent school world, which you lived uh, you know, in your childhood and also in your uh, professional career. What, what's your take on the independent school world? My sense is uh, the independence of the independent school world uh, positioned that, um, that category of institution extremely well over the, the course of the pandemic. I think so. I mean, we, we expected there to be some health in that arena in the independent schools uh, coming through uh, the pandemic and as it continues, um, because these were really seasoned boards. I really, I really do want to want to shout out to the boards. These are boards and board members who tend to serve on a lot of nonprofits and have seen a great deal. Uh, they have been broadened and, and democratized in wonderful ways. And I think that you and I would appreciate. Um, but the level of experience on a lot of these school boards, they've seen it. They've seen crises, they've seen issues happen, they've seen um, economic challenges, and they know how to navigate it. We saw that strength hold. Um, but it doesn't mean that the independent schools aren't facing a lot right now um, in terms of, uh, you know, I still think there are challenges on diversifying these communities. Um, and really, I mean, for belonging, not, not just um, uh, performative uh, uh, diversity and inclusion, but really uh, to create belonging and to ensure that we have different kinds of, of um of environments and contexts. I also think coming through the Me Too movement and a lot of some things that some schools are challenging, you know, I'm I'm actually grateful. The sad part about those stories, but the good part is that we've had to go back and reckon uh, with some things that I think independent schools needed to deal with. You, um, looking at your career path, you didn't, I wouldn't have seen, especially after the time at Concord Academy, serving as assistant head of school, literally growing up in the independent school world, you know, off ramp into banking, on ramp back into the business side of, of the world of advancement in the independent school world, going from such tight knit, intimate communities to some of the, I mean, really Dana Farber, for example, I mean, at, you know, as globally uh, recognized healthcare uh, fundraising organization operating at, at a scale that is the polar opposite 
of an independent school and then also spending some time at Tufts, not maybe at that same scale, but still a much larger community um, than the independent school world. And then ultimately getting to both pursue your MBA, but also serve um, at Simmons uh, in a leadership role. Just what are some of your perspectives and maybe even as you speak with candidates that you work with at Lindauer on the pros and cons of the small, intimate, independent school community, the large, globally leading Dana-Farber level nonprofit, um, regional uh, education uh, opportunities as well. Um, it's, it's rare that one person gets to do all of those uh, different things as you have. I'm a real believer in that. Um, I, I, I often actually encourage people to to try to test themselves in a variety of contexts. Unless you know you're someone who cannot navigate a larger context, I really think the diversity of experience will serve um, uh, professionals well in their careers. Um, there are some through lines. I mean, what I would say, Brandon, I say this to candidates is think through um, who you are, it, it, you know, the story, the through lines, the stories of your career. So interesting parts about making those moves from Exeter was an older, older organization that had to continue to modernize. Think about that, then moving to Dana-Farber and to Tufts Medical, which was the fifth, uh, sixth largest employer in Massachusetts at the time. Um, and so those stories of, of modernizing older historic organizations, really a through line in what, in what I did, uh, because I'm also actually a startup, a, a, a builder and a grower more than a maintainer. And in all of those stories, we were really uh, building in profound ways, even at Simmons, bringing in all the graduate schools um, into the main sort of undergraduate campus and, and under understanding how we could be more like one Simmons. And so I think there are, uh, for, for candidates thinking about jobs, you know, who are you? Are you a builder or a maintainer? Are you a, a leader or comfortable being a number two or a number three? And those are wonderful roles, by the way. Um, you know, are you, uh, there are creative leaders and innovative leaders. There are people who bring structure at a certain time. And so it takes all of us often rotating through. It's it's why I believe uh, not a crazy amount of turnover is good, but a healthy amount of turnover in teams is is just helpful um, because we need different, different leaders at different times of our building. Let's talk for a minute about your experience of the Girl Scouts. I can say, uh, I almost will say with complete conviction that for all of our domestic USA audience on the Rays podcast, we have all participated in the philanthropic efforts of the Girl Scouts in some delicious form or fashion. And um, that being said, I know there's a lot more to it than that. So just take me through uh, some of the highlights of that experience. And in particular, what would we not expect about the fundraising operation of the Girl Scouts, recognizing that there is more to it than cookies? Well, it, it really actually starts with the cookie, right? That I mean, the founder of the Girl Scouts, Julia Gordon-Lowe, was an amazing fundraiser. I mean, she understood this in her early years in Savannah and learning from um, the, the girl guides, the, the guides in, in, in Europe as well. Uh, she really understood fundraising. But of course, then the Girl Scouts got the cookie. And the cookie became such a massive revenue driver in addition to membership that they never built fundraising. So part mm -hmm. of why I went to the Girl Scouts was really to build fundraising and to, to do that a first ever billion dollar uh, campaign for girls. Um, uh, and I, I, I think one of the, the surprises or, or disappointments was how uncomfortable in some ways many women still were 
talking about money, dealing with money, asking for money. Um, and I was in some ways doing what I had done at Concord years ago, which was teaching because Concord was longtime girl school before it was uh, co-ed, um, teaching women to understand their own wealth, take control of their own wealth, uh, be in control of, of how they uh, participated in organizations. We understand the number of women who are donors. Uh, but for the Girl Scouts, this was really building it all anew. Um, it, the, the Girl Scout cookie is actually a better known brand than the Girl Scouts brand, but the brand itself, those brands are iconic, right? So the interesting part is you're also taking over an organization that's almost permission-based branding in the sense that everyone owns the Girl Scouts. Everyone believes it's their brand, their, their American story. And so you can't just as a leader say, this is how we'll go because the world owns your brand and you'd have to essentially get the feedback of the community in order to move forward, um, including in fundraising. Well, I've hosted a couple of people who stand out on the podcast, uh, JT Forbes in Indiana, Paul Clifford at Penn State. And I, and I cite those uh, two individuals because they lead some of the largest alumni organizations in the higher education sector at Indiana and Penn State, respectively, in the, let's call it 500,000 to 700,000 global alumni community. That's big. It's as big as it gets in this sector. Um, Girl Scouts of the USA has 59 million living alumni. So when you think about building a campaign pyramid to get to a billion, uh, hard enough to comb through 700,000 alumni, uh, how do you how do you find a prospect pool out of 59 million? Two points to think about the fact that there are 59 million uh, women who were Girl Scouts and, 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 and some good men as well. Uh, but one out of every two women, every two women in the United States uh, was a Girl Scout. Wow. And but interestingly, and this is so relevant, Brent, to your work, um, the Girl Scouts didn't know where those alums were. Yeah. So it was almost acquisition of a public, you know, uh, we're, it was going into rooms and saying, and almost almost uh, one out of every two hand went up. I was a Girl Scout. I was a Girl Scout. So I found found pr- proud Girl Scouts everywhere. The other thing to remember, um, so before they could be donors, we had to acquire them. The other thing to remember is that it's a it's an organization with chapters. So it was actually at the time that I was there, 112 independent councils, independent 501c3s with a national organization. So the national organization was the brand, the program, the program it was as it was delivered, but it was delivered really in hometowns everywhere, every zip code in the United States and actually 94 countries overseas through the military. So that whole idea of you know, a gift pyramid in some ways I had to help the councils, 112 nonprofits, build their own campaigns. And I said, how can we be most useful? We have to help them, give them the tools, give them the structure, teach them fundraising. Some of them knew it beautifully. They're leading uh, nonprofits in D.C. or in Chicago or in L.A. But others actually needed to learn from the the real basics of fundraising, things that you and I learned when we were working together in in the field. Um, So that was super exciting to to build and and teach. I love it. And uh, after all of that, you pivoted out of the direct fundraising world into the services world. Um, spending some time um, at GGNA, but really uh, digging into the role um, at Lindauer. And I am curious, as you went through that journey, um, working in the independent school world, working uh, in, in the broader nonprofit space, healthcare space, 
how important, how did you find those roles? I mean, how important were search firms in your own career path? Um, and knowing what you know now, what might you have told Deb 20 years ago about how to build relationships with search firms, about how to um, set yourself apart as a candidate while also making sure you're, you're finding the best mutual fit? Such a great question, set of questions, really. Um, you know, early on in my career, I was recruited away a, a fair amount by other organizations, um, uh, just in, in sort of building life, ex building life experiences. Um, but I certainly had search firms in the mix for me as a candidate um, early on. And so I really did learn how to uh, take those calls, have those conversations, actually use the, the search firm to say, should I pursue this or not? You know, don't just be flattered into taking a role or considering a role or applying or, or interviewing. Uh, understand what the role is and understand whether this is the right move for you. And often you're building a conversation or a relationship with a search partner who may call you for a better time, a different role, a different location, because there are family or other considerations about where you want to live in the world and, and what what you need to be doing at that time. Um, I do, I do think in, just in terms of being a candidate, taking care of your, um, your career, understanding, you know, trying not to turn over too much, trying not to have the stints be too short. Uh, that is one of the biggest problems in terms of hiring new leaders um, that, that clients will say too many short stints. So being able to tell that story in a cogent way, um, managing your references, right? You and I, I mean, I've, I've had leaders who've gone back and, and whether they should or they shouldn't have gone off book and called every leader I ever worked for. And so how do we think about about how do we leave well when we're leaving an organization? How do we tend those relationships over time um, so that people are, are there to speak for us? And how we, um, you know, really successively build and add to our experiences. Some people are climbing a vertical. You could see that I was climbing vertically, but I was also gathering more broad experience. That was important to me. But people will do that differently. Some people are meant to be managers. Some people are meant to be, you know, expert principal gifts officers, alumni leaders, and all of those are good. That's the great thing about this advancement field. Um, whole nother topic about how to hire a search firm, but probably for another day. Well, tell me just about the role of search firms. What is the business of search and why does it need to be specific to this vertical? There are search firms that serve many other sectors. What is it about the nonprofit sector that you feel? And, and I imagine you, you must have uh, competitors that, that serve both for-profit and nonprofit um, environments and so forth. But, but what is it about the nonprofit space that you think is, is unique um, and, and supports Lindauer's positioning? You know, I think Lindauer grew at a time that advancement was growing, right? If we think about a 25-year firm and the really profound transformation of our industry, um, of our profession, it's still actually finally becoming a profession. I don't think people saw it as that years ago. Um, and so, you know, for us, I think for our clients, having somebody who understood nonprofits, understood how to how to test, you know, fundraisers can be good spinners. And so that idea that we knew how to get under what was your role, your agency in a major gift or in transforming that alumni program or, or in building the whole advancement services and data structure, we can get under and listen in a way that 
some general search firms cannot. Um, so, some of them do find great talent. A lot of them actually don't want to do advancement roles. They may do CEOs and presidents and, and school heads, um, but they're not as comfortable doing uh, the advancement roles. Um, and that's just, you know, we built a team of individuals who've been in the profession. And I think that has made a difference in our, in our ability to do our work. Tell me about the arc of your world over the last 20 months of the pandemic. I imagine there was that initial moment where any vendor partner, any leader of any organization was in a little bit of a um, part, you know, panic, part assessment phase where we were all trying to figure out what does this really mean for us, right? We knew it probably wasn't great for airlines and probably not great for hotels, but it wasn't totally clear what it might mean for higher ed, what it might mean for nonprofits, what it might mean for a museum versus an independent school, which had very different outcomes during the course of the pandemic. Um, what was the pulse at Lindauer, March, April, May yep. versus you know July, August, September? Um, because my sense is uh, it must be a remarkably busy time right now, given all of the movement, the great resignation, but we weren't talking about the great resignation at the beginning of the pandemic. We were talking about the buckling down and, and riding out a storm. And, and so just tell me what that meant for your, you and your team. You know, I think running a global firm probably gave us a little bit more early intelligence, right? So we had clients in Australia, um, in China, in, in, in Asia, in Europe. And so the, the, we were already hearing before the United States was hearing some of it and taking in the news from the World Health Organization, we had uh, signs that something was shifting profoundly. Um, I didn't, you know, I will tell you that I called a lot of people. There's no pandemic corollary in, in, in our life, our personal lifetimes, yours and mine. Uh, but I certainly called uh, colleagues who had really led through um, the economic crash or led after 9-11 and understood how to lead organizations through really challenging times. Um, what happened in the spring was that most organizations were planned to put all their hiring on hold. And yet they needed, think about it, they needed the funding, they needed the resources to continue to move forward. Um, and so we said instead, well, let's see if we can find a way through and, and absolutely repositioned the team and said, our job over the next few months is to help our existing clients get through. Um, and we, I mean, we did have some new business coming in, but it was a lot of helping clients through. Could we still hire for them? Could we teach them how to hire virtually? Could we teach them how to manage and, and onboard virtually? Um, and so that became really the theme of the, of the spring. Uh, a lot of people, people, as we said, hiring and campaigns were on hold, but we needed to also be prepared for when that tide turned again, because we didn't know things began to open up in the summer. But the other interesting part, Rent was the re regionalization of it, right? And so we had, you had states that were deeper into the pandemic at different times. So during the times that the Northeast was shut down, Texas was moving um, or the Southwest was moving and uh, whereas California was shut down. And so we really were rotating around the country and around the globe in, in interesting ways, uh, virtually, um, but it, it, it was really fascinating. And then to watch 
who who came through independent schools was one we said that um, healthcare interestingly we thought with all the focus on it there might be more there and arts and culture was shut would shut down but don't don't ever count out of arts and culture to be creative and innovative and and to continue to find a way through so we had with all the sectors lots going on um, but but absolutely a focus on supporting and gathering leaders who just needed the time to be together did a lot of leadership what we call leadership roundtables Mm-hmm. And so as we sit here now in, uh, it's just uh, late November, um, and this will probably be published in early 2022, but you can't go a day without hearing about the great resignation. Um, I can't imagine a firm that would be better positioned to understand if that's fact or fiction in the advancement world in particular. Um and as much as you must get macro insights or do surveys among your uh, candidate pool or, or, or the leadership you work with, you and your colleagues must also have um, countless one-on-one conversations where you maybe are able to uh, or were able to hear the changing tenor from I'm going to buckle down and ride this out to I'm going to peek my head up to this is what I want for the next chapter of my career. And in particular, um, we have been big advocates for supporting remote work in advancement, in particular for fundraising roles that generally um, pre-pandemic, you heard leaders say, we want you out of the office. We don't want you at your desk. Now we've gone through this interesting period where in some environments it's get back to your desk, even though we want you to be back out on the road. Um, and, and I know just hearing uh, from advancement professionals who reach out to me saying, hey, love what you're saying about remote work. It's not happening here. Or we would like to do that, but our president won't let us. Or there's some structural thing about equity where because the, the faculty can't work remote, then fundraisers can't work remote, even though the, the roles could not be more different. Um, and so I say all of that really to set up this question, which is, Knowing what you know now, both through aggregate data and the one-on-one conversations you and your colleagues are having, if you were a senior vice president of advancement in the education sector, how would you approach remote work? What would your policy be if you were trying to recruit the best talent available in today's market? There's no doubt that um, you absolutely have your choice of top talent if you can build in remote work and remote options for people. Um, uh, just no doubt about it. Uh, that, that's what many, many, many people want. Some people love to be on a campus. Great. Um, there'll always be a place for that. Uh, but I do think the the level of talent seeking um, fully remote and or hybrid, there are people who are still willing to move. People are moving around the country, but the commutes were killing people. They're worse than ever actually post pandemic because people aren't on public transportation. And so the amount of lost time and lost productivity, um, I think we have to figure out as leaders. And and I understand I'm coming from a, a school of thought. I managed a significant remote workforce at the Girl Scouts. So I'm used to it. I'm used to having people all over the country doing their jobs in really interesting ways. I do think it's an interesting challenge right now. And what's the ethical responsibility of a leader in in an educational community where the education is so tied to a town or a city's success, right? And the students are saying, we do want our, we want our adults around us um, 
it matters to us that there are the role models and the mentors. I, 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 what I really believe, Brent, is that people are, we should be designing for maximum flexibility. There are some jobs that need people on campus and some people love those jobs, right? You and I have friends who missed the office. They missed driving to and being in the community. So I think there is something for everyone, but everybody has to understand as much as possible, rethink these roles and whether they truly need to be in person. Um, because we learned in the in this pandemic that productivity did not suffer. But certain types of tasks are better done in groups. So what I say to people is be as, as, as creative as you can in the crafting of your roles and your team design. Equity is more complex than we sometimes make it. It doesn't mean that it's all the same. Uh, it, it, you know, people contribute in different ways and we should go for that. But it does mean that if you have remote and hybrid, you have to think about when you're gathering people. We know that ideation and some of the creative functions are actually really well done in person um, and that doing them in this in this virtual way takes some real extra pulling it towards you and some expert facilitation. So it can be done. It's been done by leading organizations for years around the world. Um, so I hope that our, our leaders in our organizations get through this um, facing forward. But it doesn't seem like that is the case, at least right now, based on what I am hearing. And candidly, I've almost felt a little bit guilty because we've posted a few roles recently and we've been inundated with candidates from the advancement sector. We're not trying to poach from our you know, customers, but at the same time, it's hard to ignore, like you said, and it, truly the top talent saying, I would love the opportunity to do, uh, you know, to, to partner and collaborate on this mission, but also do it from Minnesota or do it from Tennessee or do it from wherever home is. And we've looked at that as just being unbelievably um, really liberating from a recruitment perspective, you know, being able to look at it um, without caring how close to 330 Congress Street someone lives or how bad their commute's going to be. And I think about some of the conversations we used to have about those topics pre-pandemic, and it seems sort of crazy in hindsight. I also recognize we're privileged being in the software space that it is inherently well-suited for remote work. You know, I'm not suggesting the basketball coach should work remotely or that, uh, you know, faculty members should be remote. I do think it's very uh, role specific, but it unfortunately feels like it's been quite binary um, at many educational uh, institutions. I am curious, given your work, public, private, small, large institutions within education in particular, um, are there patterns around remote or hybrid work or in-person mandates within the advancement realm based on um, your uh, client base, or is it really institution specific? I'd make it, I would make it leader specific, Brent. I think that is the biggest definer right now. It is not sector specific. I'm seeing innovative leaders at big publics and big privates and small privates and independent schools. I'm seeing people get very smart and creative about this um, and think about what the future workforce looks like. What does education look like, right? What does higher ed look like? And yes, we're so used to that campus-based model. Some people are, but if you spend any time around some of the more virtual educational models, they are profoundly energizing and, and brilliant. And so, you know, I, I, I take my lessons from so many places, uh, but I, it, 
it has more to do with if a leader, and I think I there is something here that is, is sometimes generational, right? But there are leaders who simply cannot lead a remote workforce or a hybrid workforce. And the centrifugal pull back to the old ways of being um, is strong. Uh, you know, I think maybe the workforce will bifurcate, right? And people who love that will go to that. But I don't know how those organizations will do long term because I don't know about the innovation coming through that workforce. If really you're just going to be pulling from your town um, and people don't want to leave their families, they don't want to uproot. Um, And so I, I, I worry a lot about the survival of organizations that are so I'm going back to the old way instead of there are new pathways and I'm committed to finding them. How much do you feel in your role um, and and in the work of your colleagues at Lindauer have you had to become consultative around these philosophies? Because I could see a, let's call it more old school uh, client of yours who says, Deb, I need these three positions filled. You know, we're back in the office. I need people, butts in seats, you know, go find me some people. On one hand, you could say, okay, that's what the client wants. Like, let's go find, try to match up people that are hungry for the in-person experience and just align the candidate with the culture of this organization. Or you could say, I hear you, but let me explain to you why that is not the ticket to accessing top talent. How do you navigate accepting the work versus politely uh, pushing back based on uh, all of the insights you're sharing here. You know, we did, we're spending an enormous amount of time in exactly that cons- consultative role um, with with organizations and with leaders um, who come to the table saying they have to ha- absolutely have to be butts and seats, as you describe it. Um, and then they begin to see that some of the talent they really want has no intention of moving to that location full time. They're happy to spend a week, a month. Um, X days a month. I mean, actually, people with guidelines can work out their lives sometimes, yeah. uh, but um, the the level of talent they'll be able to see. And so it often comes uh, as we're going through the process, we're actually convincing a leader to consider if they want to attract that level of talent and remember to add uh, diversity on top of it. Uh, yep. So if you want more leaders of diverse lived experience um, and you're in a certain locations in this country, very, very difficult to recruit there. And so what will make it possible? Um, and, and leaders might say, but then that person's not truly in our community. Actually, I, I think it will, you'll, they'll grow it. Um, but for leaders who want to make sure that they can maintain the lives they had and be part of this community, um, some, of, some of these hybrids really have been exciting and have grown the organizations in new ways. So a year down the line, organiza- leaders who said to me, I'm never hiring a remote person, have fully remote team members. And I mean, one said to me last week, I can't believe this, how well this has worked. It's made us better. That's what we want. So tell me about some of the placements that you're familiar with that you've, you know, that your colleagues have worked on that never would have happened pre-pandemic that maybe you're, you're proud of or that stand out as just being reflective of the new reality that we're in. Have any matches been made that come to mind or maybe you expect might be made here in the coming months? Yeah, I, I do. I, and I, I'm seeing some really exciting 
possible matches um, unfolding. I mean, some have taken place already. And that's one of the stories that I just told you about, you know, somebody who got their dream leader, um, but fully remote across the country. And a year into it, year and a half into it, so happy with with the choice that they made. Um, We're also seeing some other interesting dynamics of this because it's causing search committees and hiring leaders to rethink. Uh, and I, I think you you know can under, imagine this, that in the days when no one would have imagined a child running into the screen and jumping up into dad's lap and you're on an interview and you hold your child for a second and say, hang on, and you go on with the question, right? And then you say to the committee, hang on one second, I just need to set this this little guy up and then you go off and you set the little guy up and you come back. And we've had committees say to us, Brent, how Brent handled that caused us actually to choose him as a candidate. And that to me is profound as we think about people's lives. We've had this sometimes crazy separation between work and home. And I'm not talking about blurred boundaries that we don't, where we don't want blurred boundaries, but understanding that people are, are, are full pictures and whole, whole humans. Um, it's been really exciting to see organizations realize some of those, the mom skills, the dad skills, the coping skills are relevant across the arenas um, and in their jobs day to day. Some of those hires have been for our team, super moving. That's really cool. And you sure wouldn't have gotten a window into that uh, part of our lives um, before. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking of a, I had a baby on a lap in a zoom call this morning that, uh, that comes to mind. And, uh, I'm glad that that isn't just a, a fleeting first month of the pandemic that maybe we've reframed our comfort level with, um, with integrating work and, and, and life. Um, and so as you think about where we are, it's, it's November, late November, early December, this is sort of the beginning of Budgeting season in the advancement world really will pick up in earnest in you know early next year. Um, what do you what do you see as uh, likely trends in the talent world for this sector? Are we just steady state in a new normal, and we need to sort of adjust and, and embrace that, or do you expect there to be different twists and turns um, in the coming weeks and months based on what you're hearing uh, from the, uh, the talent community. I mean, the, the requests for searches are, are booming. Um, it's really been, uh, you are right, a busy, busy time. And I think people who held off on campaigns, organizations staffing up for campaigns. Um, but I do think some lasting changes, and I think people will see it. And it's interesting, as you say, sort of planning for 2022. Um, I do think advancement services and data and the, the, the integration of data and, and all that comes into sort of operating virtually and understanding performance in a different way than we sometimes have uh, becomes super important. So they've always been important roles. You and I have watched the beautiful burgeoning of advancement services over the years and data-driven decision-making, but I think it continues uh, to drive uh, what we're doing. And and I think the role of the gift officer, I mean, during 2020, everybody wanted to hire a digital gift officer. 
And I remember thinking, you know, we will move forward where hybrid is hybrid is it right? You know, we, we may be in and out of pandemics and this one for a while, there'll be fires, there will be floods, there will be other, you know, geopolitical upheavals in our country or around the world. And as leaders, we need to have teams that are actually agile enough to navigate that. You and I might be sitting in someone's, a donor's home, and we need to be good at that. And then we also need to be good in this in this medium as well, um, and an ability to fluidly go back and forth between them. So it may not be a digital gift, gift officer. Isn't a, isn't it simply more a good gift officer or a good alumni relations person who's adept in various channels. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to think about that. I think the budgeting has to plan for that hybrid nature, right? We're not going back to fully in-person events in many cases. People like this hybrid event, but they're more expensive. And so how do we think about our budgeting in that? How are we using our training dollars? How, I mean, there's so many different parts of the budget in this, in this regard. Um, and how will the events and the individual fundraising settle out. We certainly learned about our ability to ask for big gifts, even through this medium last yep. year. Um, you, you mentioned uh, budget. An important factor in budget is compensation, which is sort of this uh, taboo sector. You can't work in the nonprofit world and also want to make a lot of money. That would be totally unreasonable. Um, but let's talk about compensation for a second, because you know one of the things that has always struck me is when you look at the revenue generating parts of these educational institutions in particular, fundraising is a big one. You know, what's another big one? Athletics can be a big one. And we have zero problem. Uh, we're in football bowl season right now, and you're going to hear all about the coaches that make the $500,000 bonus for achieving XYZ bowl or ABC record or what the retention packages are going to be. We have zero problem paying for performance at nonprofit educational institutions for the president. We have zero problem doing it for not only the head coach, but the strength coach and all the way down the roster. And then we talk about, uh, you know, if somebody can go out and raise a billion dollars, why can't they make a million? And that is just crazy. Uh, I know you feel strongly that there needs to be more and more talent coming from other sectors, that we should be a talent magnet. Um, but it's hard to be that talent magnet in such a hot uh, economy as we think about this part of the world right now without being able to pay people really, really well. Do you see any changes happening there? Am I crazy to think that someday fundraisers should be compensated for performance the same way that football coaches are? Or are we forever going to have that double standard in this sector? You know, I actually have been been excited to see the incentive compensation models that some organizations are challenging. I don't know about the million for the billion, right? Because the, the old thinking about fundraising was that there was an ethical concern, right? It might cause you or me to go out and inappropriately get that billion dollars from someone. I don't think it's that simple. And I've, I've never, I haven't seen much of that in my career, but I do think that some of these team-based goals, the incentive models where, you know, you and I have to work together to produce a result. Therefore, it's not just Debs or Brent's. But on the other hand, I, 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 listen, I support, I, I support incentive models. Um, there's also enormous upward pressure on compensation overall um, and uh, base compensation. Uh, what right? makes you feel that way? What are like, what are some of the, the benchmarks, milestones, where you would say, wow, you know, XYZ role would have been this amount 
two years ago and now we're pressing at this level. I mean, what are some of those specific examples, if you don't mind uh, sharing? Yeah, I mean, we've seen we've seen, um, you know, a lot of the the independent school uh, advancement leaders absolutely go, you know, everyone's almost everyone, not the smallest, smallest schools going past the 200 mark. Um, and obviously some of the, the wealthier schools higher than that. Um, some with incentive models um, uh, in the, in the colleges and universities, you know, we're seeing many more threes and fours in front of leaders. Um, obviously the big, big, we know the big institutions and those who are making a million dollars a year. And they're responsible for programs that bring in much more than that. So you're right. I don't actually have a problem with that level of compensation based on the level of fundraising um, and investing in talent because it returns, right? This is not returning. um, This must be publicly available on 990s. I'm I'm not going to ask you to name names, but are there advancement leaders making a million dollars a year? Sure. So that's been true for a while now. Um, and, uh, some of the big, some of the big publics, right. Where they are, um, it, they're total compensation packages, but if you add up the pieces, you can get there. Um, and so I guess that's why I'm, a, I, I think we're too secret about talking about the compensation right. opportunities in our profession. I would I agree. I bet we have this people... is a poor profession anymore. And I right. don't think that's wrong. You and I agree with that. We don't think that's wrong. Yeah. No, I, I am sure we have listeners right now, including me, by the way, who are blown away to hear you nonchalantly talk about 200 plus a year at the independent school level, three to 400 becoming the norm in the, uh, in the higher ed sector, a million plus not being out of the question. I wonder how many of our listeners right now are surprised by that. Maybe they all know it. And maybe it's what people sort of whisper about, you know, with their friends um, in the office. I, I'm not, I'm not privy to that. If you're listening and this surprised you, you know, shoot me a note, let me know that Brent at evertrue.com or uh, shoot Deb a note. Uh, we'll get her info um, as well. But I do think that um, we should be much more confident in helping people understand you can, um, you can do really well and do good. Um, and the mission doesn't have to come at the sacrifice of your family, your personal financial goals. You should be able to work in the nonprofit sector and still want to achieve financial freedom and be able to retire and live a great life. Um, and I do think sometimes there can almost be um, a sense of guilt of even wanting to make money. And I, I just I think like that is something we would be really well served to address um, and as you've just highlighted, a lot of the leaders in the sector are doing this because it's an amazing intersection of being able to do very well financially and do work that they feel very proud of. Um, but we don't talk about that very much. No. And it's also why I believe we can be bringing people from other professions into advancement. It's the greatest set of jobs, right? You can be a relationship person. You can be a data geek. You can be an operations person. This field, our field has it all. Um, and I just, I think it's incredibly compelling. And I think the compensation is not as bad as anybody thinks. I love it. Um, Deb, just tell me, have you had any mentors along the way or people who have um, helped you as you've, uh, you know, continued to um, go, go down your own leadership journey? Yeah, I, um, 
I was lucky in the Tufts medical years um, to have Ellen Zane as CEO and learn so much. I mean, we managed that organization through a massive transition and financial restoration. Uh, it's all in the in the history in the public in the public books, so everyone knows it. Uh, case studies and and whatnot written about it. But the idea of how one communicates as a leader and brings your team with you in that journey—that this is a team journey, not one leader's or a couple of leaders' journeys—to turn around and to rebuild an organization. Um, I, I, my, my niece, Cordy, I think there is so much to learn from millennials and the, and the generations coming certainly many generations now behind, behind me, but I think that millennial generation is maligned and they are super hard workers and they actually want to produce and rethink this workforce. So I think this is, listen to those voices as we think about what our workplaces of the future look like. And obviously the generations behind the millennials, but it is the, it is the huge generation right now and important that we factor in. Um, and then I have had a lot of, Go ahead. For a second, Sorry. tell me more about your niece, Cordy, because, you know, seeing her role as global head of social media at State Street, talk about the intersection of old school and new school. And I'm sure she's got stories and you probably shouldn't tell them all uh, without her uh, explicit permission. But when you think about insights that you've uh, derived from your conversations with her, um, what, what are some of the things that stand out? Because I would imagine that intersection of digital, you know, modernizing a longstanding you know, established legacy institution, it's very common with the, I'm sure, change management struggles that uh, we see in the, in the education sector. What have you learned from Cordy? You know, I think the, um, I think this whole idea of, of rethinking and questioning what we do and why we do it, right? Um, I mean, she is, um, she is her aunt's niece, uh, and and it's partly my you know my my way through through the years. But she questions hard in leadership, and she's a very hard worker, twenty four seven worker. But that work didn't depend on one office, right? You know, she has learned you have to go in and do FaceTime. But when I'm really listening to her, her best work is done sort of operating around the world, teaching an old organization to think about social media. I mean, really, no one was listening in the beginning. And I, that's not even meant to be a cut. That reflects lots of organizations that you and I worked with. They thought, they thought social media was another newsletter. And it's not. It's a profoundly different way of engaging with the world and the two-way so that you can't be talking at you need to be listening to, and it's a it's an ongoing conversation. Um, and so, you know, really rethinking that, rethinking how we think about age, how we think about talent, is mentoring young to old, old to young, across peers, um, and then of course um, the commitment to um, for 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 Cordy and her friends, um, the diversity and inclusion in their in their generation, um, they don't want to see it go backward. Um, they want a sharing of power. They're comfortable with an intersectional uh, community. And so I, I think, you know, how we build workforces forward, I hear, I hear a lot in her voice and her stories to me of what it's like to be in the work world today. Um, and, and listen, I listen hard to that. And tell me about your own team building. Are you hiring at Lindau? We've got a couple minutes left. Um, how might our listeners know if not only engaging a search firm for the next role, but actually joining one like you did might be a viable career path? I think it's very much a career path for people who think that search might be interesting. I, I spend you know time talking to people all the time who want to get into the field and want to understand what it is. 
it's, I mean, think about it. You're not just getting to work with one organization like you, you're getting to work with lots of organizations. And that is fascinating. Um, you have to want to be able to, you have to love the phone still, interestingly, even in this digital age, you have to love these conversations or Zooms. You have to be comfortable in every medium. Um, and, um, but it, it's incredibly compelling and you can work from anywhere. We're a we're 100% virtual company at this point, um, giving people space when they need it. If they need some offices to go to, we can create that. Um, so Lindauer, Lindauer is doing a lot of fun stuff right now. We're definitely hiring, but a lot of our peer firms are hiring too. So reach out to people you know and let people know that they you're interested in learning more about this profession. It's, there's a lot of opportunity. Love it, Deb. Um, best way for folks to get in touch with you. I know you're active on LinkedIn. I'm sure that's... Uh, any search professional's best friend, but uh, what else should people know if they want to get in touch? Yeah, Lin- Lin- LinkedIn's great. Detaft at lindauerglobal.com. So easy to find me on the Lindauer website. Uh, search us and any one of us actually who can reach. And we really do urge you to, to reach out. This is not meant to be behind a wall. Um, we'd love to hear from you. I love to hear from folks. Um, and, you know, I'm on a lot of different social media. So feel feel free to reach out. Um, and, and my cell is pretty open there too. Hey, Deb, last question. Um... Am I going to see you on the conference circuit again? This is a hot topic right now. We're trying to figure out, you know, I met, I've made so many relationships with people like you spending countless hours on vendor floors all over the country, case conferences, you name it. Um, and we're budgeting right now and we're really struggling with, do we go back to that? Your whole point of how do we look forward or do we just revert to the way we used to do it? And we're obviously longtime partners of Case, and you and I have collaborated in in that capacity. But but what is the um, what is the future of the conference for building Lindauer and Evertrue? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question for us as businesses. I do I do know there are lots of people out on the conference building plans for 2022 to be back in the conferences. And Brent, I wonder if it actually takes on a newer and different and more important role again in a hybrid or remote workforce, right? What if those are the times when we, in fact, are flying our teams in for some time together? You know, you and I agree to meet or even bring our teams together. Um, I think there we, we should be using those floors in a new way. We should be using those meetings in a new way um, and thinking how we teach. We now know we can deliver a lot of stuff in this medium. So what are those meetings for? And I think there are certain types of gatherings and ideation and creativity and energizing and motivation that may become more the use of those of those stands. So I'm, I'm, we're building it in, uh, not so much in the old way, but to be back out and to be listening. I mean, it, yeah. you do get so much information. Well said. Uh, I am looking forward to some, you know, non-scripted 30-minute or 45 or one-hour Zoom block type conversations that you get uh, in that environment. And uh, I suspect I will see you out on the conference floor at some point here in the coming months, Deb. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I've always wanted to learn more about the search world. I've only scratched uh, the surface here today, uh, but you've always just been a great um, friend and uh, willing Um, partner in uh, helping me get up to speed on various aspects of the sector. So thank you for that. uh, And I wish you and your team the best. Thank you. A joy to be with you as always. Excellent. And with that, uh, Brent, going to close today's conversation with Deb Taft, the Chief Executive Officer at Lindauer. Take care, everybody.